This is On The Grid, powered by theracetalk.com on mypodcasthouse.com. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of On The Grid here on mypodcasthouse.com or on the radio show Limited's RS1. Thank you so much for joining us. It is pre-Bathurst week and that is where we're going to focus our attention this week. Very shortly we're going to speak to Bathurst co-driver Jack Perkins who has uh, found himself a gig with Brad Jones Racing this year for the great race. He'll be uh, looking at doing a good job there I'm sure as he always does. Uh, with his co-driving stints there at Bathurst. We'll also catch up with Mark Walker, Dale Rogers, Richard Crail and myself and we're going to talk about our top five Bathurst drives. Interesting one. You can join in the conversation as well on the racetalk.com's social media channels. Tune into that one a little bit later on as well. But first of all, the news and supercar CEO Sean Seema has indicated 2020's two-day, three-day race sprint formats may become a permanent fixture going forward. Single pit stops and restrictions on team members have also been a feature of post-COVID supercars, with Seema indicating they may be retained. Supercars will move back to its traditional four-day event for the first time this season for this month's Bathurst 1000. CEO of the Australian Grand Prix Corporation, Andrew Westercott, is expecting Australia's Grand Prix events to return to their traditional time slots in 2021. Provisional calendars for next month's Formula One and MotoGP seasons are expected in mid to late October, with Westercott confident of events in March and October next year. The AGPC currently holds contracts with Formula One until 2025 and MotoGP organisers Dorna until 2026. Young Australian drivers James Wharton and Marcus Flack are set to participate in the Ferrari Driver Academy camp in Italy this month. The pair of 14-year-olds are the first benefactors of Motorsport Australia's new partnership with FDA, having both raced karts internationally. Motorsport Australia CEO Eugenia Rocker said they had been overwhelmed by the FDA's interest in Australia, Oceanic and Asia-Pacific regions. Italian kart driver Luca Corberi has vowed never to race again after committing what the FIA termed disturbing events during the FIA karting KZ World Championship. Having crashed out of the race, Corberi was seen throwing a bumper at racing drivers before allegedly sparking a brawl post-race. And there's Luca Corberi watching at the side of the road. What's he doing? What is Luca Corberi playing at? Oh, Luca Corberi, what on earth is he doing? I'm sorry, that is absolutely unacceptable. Luca Corberi makes himself public enemy number one. I'm sorry, that is absolutely unacceptable. Corberi's father is the owner of the track where the incidents occurred in Lonato and was allegedly involved in the brawl with Corberi Jr. under FIA investigation. Formula One engineer manufacturers Honda have announced they'll cease their association with the sport at the end of 2021, leaving Red Bull and AlphaTauri in need of a new engine supplier. The Japanese manufacturer will instead channel resources into carbon-free technology pursuits, meaning they'll lack the resources to continue in F1. Under the FIA sporting regulations, Renault may be obliged to supply engines to Red Bull, as they currently supply the least amount of teams of all manufacturers. Formula One and the FIA have denied 10 new COVID-19 cases detected within the sport are a result 
of increased crowds at the Russian Grand Prix. 30,000 spectators a day were allowed into the Sochi Autodrome for the event, the largest crowds permitted anywhere so far this season. And despite this, the FIA and F1 statement has declared no spectators were allowed in the bubble, therefore could not have influenced cased numbers. Haas boss Gunther Steiner believes it would be unethical to look for a new engine partner, despite long-term partners Ferrari battling through the 2020 campaign. Haas have worked with Ferrari since the former F1's induction in 2016, with their engine contract set to run out at the end of 2021. Steiner declared Haas had not spoken to other power unit manufacturers at this stage. Valentino Rossi has held tentative talks with Yamaha about his VR46 team entering MotoGP's Premier Class. VR46 riders currently sit first and third in the Moto2 standings, with riders also involved in junior classes. The next team participation cycle for MotoGP begins in 2022, although Rossi feels that may still be a bit too early for his team, where resources would be stretched. The World Rallycross Championship is looking for a new promoter with IMG set to quit the sport at the end of the season. IMG signed a 20-year commercial rights partnership in 2013 and oversaw exponential growth of the series through investment and expansion. However, a proposed switch to electric cars for 2020 saw a drop-off in participation, while American Watchdog reports in May signalled IMG may be up to $7 billion in debt. Joseph Newgarden has moved to within 32 points of Kiwi Scott Dixon with just one IndyCar race remaining following a strong doubleheader at the Harvest GP. Dixon took a 72-point lead into the Indianapolis road course weekend but could only manage to finish 5th, sorry, could only manage to finish 9th and 8th. Newgarden claiming a win and his 4th place. Dixon is still in the box seat needing to finish 9th or better at St Petersburg in a fortnight to claim the 6th IndyCar title of his career. The second race of the Harvest GP was claimed by Australian Willpower, who led for 75 laps and saw off late pressure from Colton Herder. The win was his second of the season, having also saluted at Mid-Ohio, and was his fourth in total in Indianapolis. This has been one of Power's best tracks in his IndyCar career. The Brickyards Road Course. Will Power, he won the pole position. He's going to win the race. Power wins at Indianapolis. Nice job, nice job. Yeah, it was, uh, it was good not to get caught by yellow or something strange like that. And uh, guys did great stops and we had a very good car. We definitely improved on it from yesterday. And um, man, I, I just pushed so hard the whole race. Um, uh, obviously, we had to save fuel, but you're still pushing, you know, while lifting early into the corner. So, yeah, fantastic day, fantastic day. And the introduction of hybrid engines in IndyCar has been delayed until 2023 as the series continues to navigate difficulty caused by COVID-19. IndyCar is also looking for a third engine supplier, having extended its contracts with Honda and Chevrolet on multi-year deals. That is the news. Let's get straight into the show. This is On The Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. All right, joining us as he does every week for our guest chat, Richard Crail. Hello, Crailsy. How are you from the theracetalk.com? Yes, Shebexter. I'm well. How are you? Marvellous, thank you, mate. Marvellous. Absolute crap weather down here in Melbourne, so getting used to that again. Yeah, well, spring has sprung here in sunny South Australia. We've had a good stretch of nice weather. A bit of rain lately, though. A bit bipolar, actually. But uh, yeah. it's all good. And just coming to terms with the fact that Bathurst is now 
what, a week and a half away. We're not far away from the great race and, and we're really looking there. forward to that. No, I know. And that's rubbish, isn't it? Just terrible. <laughs> it is terrible. It's don't, rubbish. I don't it is like rubbish that. for us, <laughs> but it's not rubbish for this bloke who will be there and is making his way up there shortly, currently in self-isolation somewhere in the back paddocks of New South Wales. We speak, of course, of Jack Perkins, who gets another drive in the great race in 2020. Hello, Jack. How are you? Yeah, good, Shebexter and Krause. Good to chat to you, boys. And uh, disappointed to hear that you won't both be coming to Bathurst. I must admit, at one stage, I thought I wasn't going to be going either. But I am happy to say that I am going. Yeah, well, it, it's strange old year for you, mate, because you had a co-drive locked in and then that team disappeared out of the championship that's been well covered this year. So just talk about the process of, of how you've landed up alongside Jack Smith in the SCT logistics car at BJR. Yeah, it's been um, it's been a really challenging year, mate. I mean, I'm certainly not on my own when it comes to the, the year that we've all faced. But um, you know, a co-driver typically gets to the end of the endurance season the year before, and you know, over that Christmas period when people are cracking beers, we're busy trying to get a next deal together for an endurance campaign. And I'd done all that hard work, and I'd got myself into a really good position with, you know, driving with Will Davison in, in a Milwaukee Mustang. And, uh, you know, it was fantastic. And then um, we got to the super test at Tail and Bend, and the car was the quickest. And then Will was quite competitive at Clipsal, and then obviously Grand Prix. And thinking, I've, you know, I've done the right thing here. And then, as we all know, the, the COVID 19 thing uh, hit us in the face like a, a water balloon. And, um, Unfortunately, that the team had to fold because Milwaukee, uh, you know, had to pull the pin and save some money and whatnot. And there's no hard feelings there whatsoever. I mean, I'm I'm glad it was only one team. It's just a shame that it affected me. But at that point of the year, which is now fast track to sort of June, July, there's not a lot of race winning Bathurst 1000 seats there. So um, it was a bit of a challenging situation just to sort of navigate my way through what little opportunities were left. Um, there was some flattering phone calls, I guess, you know, to help, help tickle the ego a little bit. There was a couple of nice chats there, but for me, I, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to land at Brad Jones Racing back in Holden Commodore, a team that's in form mm. and, um, you know, a different uh, sort of job for me, you know, not different job, but a different sort of uh, environment working with a, a rookie in Jack Smith. So, you know, I'm, I'm really happy the way it's all panned out to, you know, A, B on the grid, but B, being a competitive car and a competitive team. It was quite an interesting scenario because I think most of us probably thought that when the drive went with Will, the fact that James Courtney then came into the team and took that seat and the fact that you had already had a relationship with James through previous drives may have meant that that may continue this year. It seemed logical that that would continue that year. Is there a reason why it didn't? Uh yeah, I suppose what's logical to some isn't to others, mate. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it, it seemed like we would have, you would have thought after driven with someone for five years and I guess, you know, we we're already in the team and everything that that was, good, you know, pretty good chance of happening out of all the scenarios that could have played out. But um, as we know, the, the sponsor decided to go with someone else. So um, that, you know, cost me a bit of time in terms of chasing something, but we, you know, can't dwell on that that is what it is so um whilst i you know would love i'm not gonna say that i wouldn't like to have driven with james because i, I definitely would have i'm you know that opportunity's not there and um you know i'm like I said, I'm, I'm happy to be back in holden 
it's their last year on the on the mountain supporting the, the sport as a you know as a business and um you know to be with another top line team at brad jones racing it's you know my list of teams i've driven for now is is getting up there so i've got another race suit to put in the uh in the closet come the end of the year <laughs> and, I, and I, I must say i do love the synergy of you being with brad jones racing uh, the, the history of brad jones racing you know, the history of perkins all that sort of stuff there's there's a lot of you know, family connection, I suppose, around it as well. It, it seems like a nice fit for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've always liked driving with the family teams. Um, I think the last time I did, uh, it was, you know, Gary Rogers Motorsport, if you like. And um, it's certainly an environment that I'm, that I'm you know, familiar with. Um, but equally, um, it's just good to see that the team's competitive. You know, they punch above their weight a bit there and, um, I think the the way that they, that they run the team, Brad and Kim do a fantastic job. And um, I've got good experience with the engineer on that car is, is Paul Forgey, who most of you would know was with Ambrose in, in his Stone Brothers mm. era. But I worked with him in New Zealand when I was co-driver for Greg Murphy. So I've worked with him for three seasons as well. So that's kind of how it, it, it helped, you know, join a bit of a link. And um, Paul was pretty keen to, to get us in the car with Jack and, um, and, 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 you know, I'm look, looking forward to working with those guys. That's for sure. Well, that was going to be my next question, mate. Did you reach out to Brad or did Paul drive that process to get you in, on board? Because it, it seems like a smart decision with a young bloke in Jack Smith who's still getting up to speed, especially in a race this year where there's no enduro warm-ups going into it, having a co-driver that can slot straight in with a lot of experience. And you've got plenty of that at Mount Panorama now. Um, how did that process come through and, and was it driven by Brad or Paul or, or yourself? Well, it's funny, actually. Um, I had spoken to Brad in the off season about, you know, potentially running with uh, Nicholas Perkett. Yep. I don't know why I called him Nicholas, but Nick Perkett. Um, so I'd sort of spoken to Brad, um, uh, you know, I think it was December and, uh, you know, then I decided to go one way and they went another way and there's no hard feelings or anything, but um, I'd spoken to Paul and actually Andy Jones played a, played a pretty big role because he uh, has a role with the Smith family and then obviously has a role yep. with BJR. So I sort of ended up dealing a lot um, more with Andy uh, who I know very, very well. And, um, and, and uh, you know, we were able to put something together and, you know, you know obviously um, Jack's dad, and the family own the franchise or the rec, if you like. So they've got a, you know, a bit of involvement in, in this decision-making process as well. So um, it was, it was, it was kind of interesting to, to sort of just do a really simple deal with someone where it's just, you know, you don't need a 25 page contract just to go and do one race. So yeah, it's all worked out, like I said, really well. And um, I'm just actually really keen to get in the car and, and see what they're like. You know, I, I've been driving with those engines before in the Eggleston cars, the Kenny Mack engines. And, then to put that into another chassis, I'm just really interested to see how that's all going to pan out. So it's kind of weird having never driven the car and the first time we will, we'll be in practice there, but yeah. um, you know, I might even have to get a few of the blokes to put name tags on their shirts. <laughs> I might have to you know, be learning a few names on the Thursday. <laughs> Lucky you'll get lots of track time this year, an extra couple of hours, I think in, in total across the weekend to get drivers up to speed, co-drivers especially, which will be nice. Um, you're going to BJR and you touched on it. You're going there at a really good time, mate, because they're in great form. Um, and they're a team that every time there's a rule shuffle or a, a consolidation or a change in the way the sport operates, they tend to bounce 
right up towards the front of the field. They're really nimble outfit and they seem to rebound really well when there's change in the sport. We saw it when Car of the Future came in. They were right at the front of the field. Fabian Coulthard was on pole a couple of times at the mountain. And then this year with all the changes, they've been properly competitive and not just Nick Perkett. Todd Hazelwood's been there. Mac has had some really strong performances as well. And Jack's obviously been getting up to speed in his car. So it feels like you're going there at a, a great time. And, and if there's ever a place where BJR is going to jag a good result, it could well be Mount Panorama. Yeah. Um, and when I spoke to Brad, actually, at the start of or over the Christmas period, you know, he touched on that, Krause, that, you know, they, they seem to always uh, get, you know, be at the top end of the timesheets when there is sort of a bit of drastic change. And that was sort of their prediction. And to his credit, he's, he's held his end of the bargain up there <laughs> yeah. and delivered some some good competitive cars. And it's like you touch on, um, you know, there hasn't been sort of one-off flashes of brilliance this year. It's been sort of consistency across the, the main bowler, if you like, with Perkat, but also Todd getting some great qualifiers and race results and a pole position. Uh, Macca, you know, uh, uh, showing good turns of speed, but also Jack, you know, at one of the Darwins had the fastest lap of the race. So um, it is encouraging that all four cars are showing speed. And I mean, I know how hard it must be for Jack um, in his first year, because, you know, for me, qualifying was the most difficult thing. And he's been six or seven tenths off pole and he's in the twenties. So yeah. uh, I know firsthand how challenging that can be. And probably why my co-driver career is much more profound than my main driver <laughs> career, to be brutally honest with you. So if he wants some qualifying tips, they may not be becoming from me. But, um, <laughs> it's just, you know, I'm really keen to lend my experience. I feel like I've, you know, not been there and done that if you like, but um I feel like I can definitely help someone in his role. I know what he's going through and, and I'm happy to, to, to play that role for the team and um, yeah, just be a part of the, the four car operation that is Brad, jo- Brad Jones racing. For many a year of Bathurst, it was very much a main driver and then the co-drivers were just basically there just to make sure the car got around and came back to the main driver to finish off the race in the last half a dozen or so years that's changed to the extent that there's been a race of two. The co-drivers are as competent as the main drivers in a lot of cases. And when they're all together, there's some really good battles. And even the co-drivers are taking it up to some of the main drivers at time this year, though, with 16 of the 25 co-drivers having had previous V8 supercar experience, this year is a mega year when it comes to co-driver seats. It is, isn't it? It's... um... You know, for me, I guess it's been interesting watching a lot of these main game guys drop to the co-driver duties, if you like, with Garth, uh, Lounsey, Slade now, um, and James Gold in those guys. It's certainly, you know, I guess, bolstered the credentials of the co-drivers. But I still feel as though, you know, the co-drivers have always been, certainly the top sort of five or ten, that their pace has always been quite good. I mean, Mm. you know, I've been a co-driver now since around about 2010, um, and we've always had, you know, strong co-drivers around that early year is always Paul Dumbrell for one that was quite strong, but guys like David Besnard and all those guys that have always been able to match their main guys, but there's probably a couple more of them, as you said. And the big thing um, post-race, which you don't necessarily get to see a lot of during the race, is the kind of co-driver analysis. So generally the teams will grab the 
25 or 30 fastest laps the co-driver was able to produce and they rank it against the other co-drivers and then they rank it against the main drivers. And that's typically where a team owner, a Brad Jones, a Roland Dane is going to be looking for his co-driver for the year after. And I guess why I'm touching on that is, you know, last year for me was probably one of my best years in those ranks. Mm. Bathurst, I think I was 10th or 11th. I was only looking at this the other day. Um, but we were saving fuel during the race. So our data was a bit skewed, but you go to um, stand down on the Gold Coast and we're comfortable in the top five of the co-drivers. So it gives me a bit of confidence knowing that that those numbers from last year, um, you know, can still put you in good stead against some of those top flight co-drivers that are getting a bit more press this year. So it'll be interesting to look at all that data after Bathurst um, to see who was the best of those guys because there's a couple of them knocking on the door to um, get back in the main game. So with that in mind then, Jack, does that give the team so much more flexibility in regards to their planning for the day? Does it mean that there, there doesn't well, have to be that sort of real focus now so much on the main driver? Yeah, and it comes back to the fastest strategy is the fastest car. And then if you can have the fastest car with two of the fastest drivers, you know, the rest will just take care of itself. Um, the announcement of the safety car with people getting their lap back, that's probably going to be the biggest influence in the motor race, I think. Um, that may give cars that have a, you know, that may not have the fastest co-driver. If it's a green flag race for over 100 laps like last year, there will be cars go lap down. And then if there's a safety cars to go in the back half of the race, they're going to get their laps back. So I think that's going to be the biggest influence on the race this year. But you're right, um, there'll be an opportunity where a Tim Slade or a Garth Hander is going to have to race against Shane Van Gisbergen or Scott McLaughlin or Jamie Winkup or, you know, Will Davison and, and they're going to have to hold their own. And I think out of all the names I've mentioned, they're all top class. So yeah. um, it's going to be fascinating to watch. And um, I think, like you said, it's going to, you know, whoever's the fastest over those laps and, and stints is going to come out on, on top at the end of the day. Uh, you touched on the safety car rule. That's, that's probably the biggest rule change year on year. What do you make of it? Well, I've actually always been a bit of a fan of the NASCAR lucky dog type thing. Um, you know, where one car yeah. gets a lap back because I think it does provide an incentive. Once you go a lap down, the shoulders drop in the garage, the pit stops get a bit lazy. The drivers lose a bit of interest. It is a challenging prospect, not to say that you should be just giving a lap back for the sake of it, but, but what can happen in a long green flag race like last year, I think it was 101 laps before we saw a safety car. It was. Half a chance, you know, you know, maybe 10 cars will go a lap down. So, so I think it's a good thing. Um, I think this year you've seen, obviously, the rules are to try and, with tyres and things, try and mix up the results a little bit, try and keep a few more people up the front of the grid if they may not have been there and just give everyone an opportunity. And that's one thing that I love about our sport, about Bathurst, is every car and every driver gets a chance to be in it. But in football, there's only two teams that get to be in the grand final. So yeah. uh, but I think it adds a pretty cool part of all that. It's something that we can really leverage with our sponsors and our fans is, you know, even if your favourite car and drivers had a poor season, they're still going to be there in the grand final. So... I think that just adds to a part of that, and I'm excited to see how it plays out. Um, it'd be disappointing, I guess, if someone, I don't know, went a lap down because they got a penalty for crashing someone off the racetrack and managed to yeah, get yeah, it's true. a lap or two back and win the race because then it'll go down the history books as the person you know that got a lap back that maybe shouldn't have. But I don't think it'll pan out that way. I think it'll just help someone, you know, sort of more around the mid pack than the front. 
Mate, um, tell us a bit about your year so far. Obviously, the, the wheels all came off the wagon at the Grand Prix, as we all know, has been well documented. Um, you're, you and your family in a good place, though, in that you've got the farm up at Cowangie that you've been able to jump to, and um, which has been fantastic. And um, we need to touch on your branching out into YouTube, mate, with the uh, both Perkins Engineering, which has been terrific, but you, the little farming channel you've got going on, mate, what's the genesis of that? Well, I'll start by saying in, in relation to the year is uh, I thought about running Australian government logos on my helmet this year because thanks to JobKeeper, I've been able to press on. You and me too. Um, but I guess I felt like I was just getting some of my tax money back from over the years. But that's a, I'm digressing. Um, yep. But yeah, you're right. When when sort of everything hit the roof in Melbourne uh, the first time, uh, my family and I decided to get up to the farm uh, with, a, with a new baby and and just sort of uh, get out of the rat race of Melbourne, um, which sort of went on for a couple of months. And then when we went and raced the Sydney uh, Super 2 race, we were sort of back in Melbourne. Um, and then obviously the, the numbers got back up and whatnot, but we'd already made a decision to actually move to the farm and, and sell up in Melbourne. Uh, so we, we moved up there, just, um, just a bit more breathing space, if you like. And, um, we were always looking at a move, but this one came a bit quicker than we thought. Um, and then given that, uh, you know, a few things haven't happened this year, racing wise and TV wise, I've been digressing and, um, you know, maximizing what we're doing with the farm work and the harvest, which will be coming up, which has been good. So I've been working with dad um, and our chef farmer getting all that in and just started to think about some other ways of, uh, you know, um, our Perkins engineering Facebook page is, been such a success that yeah. we were looking at various ways um to sort of keep building on that and 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 see if we can leverage with various partners and whatnot so someone said why don't you start a youtube channel so i did um off the back actually of um i made a video of dad pull starting an engine and yes. uh, it got a million views on facebook <laughs> so i thought if, if i could get a cent for every view i'd be pretty happy so we started you? on the youtube and um <laughs> Don't you get money for like that many views on YouTube? Ultimately, you do. Eventually. <laughs> yes. Ultimately, uh, Shebex, you do. That one was Facebook. That was before ah, I started to okay. get on YouTube. So now um, we've decided to start filming some of the silly things we do on the farm from servicing various tractors. And I, w I wish I had someone else there to film for me because half the time, Dad and I are busy fighting with each other doing something and it would make <laughs> great TV. But um, uh, that's sort of what we've been doing. So the, the YouTube channel is film is uh, Perkins Engineering. There's only two videos. I was hoping to get another video in the can before I um, had to exile out of Victoria. But um, our viewers and listeners will have to wait for the next one. It'll probably be post Bathurst. Mate, uh, Cow Angie from uh, from mine, I reckon it's about four and a half hours just across the border. So I would be more than happy to come and film you and your dad arguing. All right, that'd make great television. <laughs> yeah, well, I might take you up on that, Crowley, when these borders open. Because yep. at the moment, I can only get 40 kilometres into South Australia. So um, when these borders open, I'll take you up on that. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the great thing is, too, it's not just where you guys live now. It's also the birthplace of dad and there's a big sign at the front of the town that tells people that as they drive through, is it any truth to the rumor that they're replacing the sign? Yeah, I can confirm that. Cause I did it myself. The, <laughs> um, the, the, uh, it's, the a big sign, when you, it's a big grim when you've got to replace your own sign. Surely. 
Well, yeah, I, I must admit um, the the sort of the homestead there uh, is run by um, the old CWA ladies, and they approached me to see if we could update the faded signs. Yeah. And um, my my dad doesn't really like the sign because it's you know it's about him and he doesn't you know doesn't like the notoriety if you like, but the community like it and the signs yeah. that were there were really really faded about 15 years old so i said to them that i'd be happy to you know leverage against some of the motorsport community to make it a bit more cost effective and make it happen so um thanks to creative options uh in in melbourne and benny grice from bang signs we were able to uh get a couple new signs made and we got them up on the highway and the old ones we're going to um auction off on the bathurst week um the community want to get the money back for the signs which was only 600 bucks i think in the end which was quite cheap um and then possibly donate the rest to some community-based charity that we haven't Excellent. um decided on yet so it'd be quite cool to to first of all update the signs like we have at at no cost to the community and then see if we can get some money on top of that to um you know do something for the local community or for a charity that helps people within the community so um, like I said, dad doesn't like the sign, but everyone else does. And it's kind of cool to have a new one up there. And we've got a couple other cars up there and, and thanks to Castrol and V8 Sleuth for the, for the photos. Um, so thanks to all those guys in the motorsport community to help make it happen for us. That's awesome. Fantastic stuff. Hey, Jack, uh, as we say goodbye to you, we're going to come on with myself, Quasi, Mark Walker and Dale Rogers and talk about our top five Bathurst drives. So, uh, drives that we've seen over the time and what we think may be the best. I'm going to. Just try and get one off the top of your head. What's the best Bathurst drive you've ever seen? Well, you've got me on the top of my head, but I'm going to give you two. The first one, it's pretty hard to go past Dad, 95, last to first Bathurst. Um, now, that, I've, that I've, got a, I've got a story, almost, I've got a story well, with that because that's in my yeah. top five. But unfortunately, it's tied with another first to last, which is, of course, Mostert. And the dude. Uh, okay. And now they actually did start last, whereas your dad started third, but went to last after the touch-up with Lounge. So I'm really tossing up as to whether they get the spot or whether your dad should. Yeah, if you watch the 95 race, though, they do go a lap down there at one stage. So I think, you know, there's no lucky dog. They didn't get given that lap back. <laughs> no, so that's a... Right maybe a more genuine last of first. But the other one that I want to touch on, and it's important to me because I reckon it goes unnoticed a lot. It's Greg Hansford's drive in 1993. To, to put it into perspective, um, he was a part-time co-driver and their opposition was two full-timers in Scaife and Jim Richards. Yeah. And uh, for him to hold his end of the bargain up, I think it's um, you know worth mentioning that that's a pretty awesome drive. Obviously, Dad did his bit too that day, but you know a part-time motorcycle rider to 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 do what he did in '93 is pretty cool. What about yourself, Jacko? Um, obviously, podium last year is amazing, but was there a better moment or a better stint than what happened last year than for you personally? Yeah, I feel like all my good drives up there came without a decent result. To be fair. Um, uh, in 2013, I remember driving with Scott McLaughlin. We, we managed to pass Paul Dumbrell in the Red Bull car. Yep. Um, that, and that, I don't know, for some reason we finished 
a long way behind them that day. So I remember, you know, racing him hard and getting the job done there. So that, that to me rings a bell. 2014, making the shootout and being fifth with 25 laps to go just to get a drive through was disappointing. Um, but yeah, mate, I, I think I, I think I'm starting 15 starts this year and, um, I'm just grateful to, to have been on the grid for the first one and, and have done them all as a type one diabetic since then. So hopefully this year's drive will, will be as good as last year's and then there's an opportunity to do it again in 2021. Yeah, fantastic stuff, mate. We thank you so much for your time, Jack. Enjoy the rest of your uh, time the next couple of days in isolation before you make your way up to the mountain. And we hope that it's a magnificent week for you and the team. Good stuff, boys. Thanks for having me on. Jack Perkins joining us here on The Grid. All right, Kazi, we mentioned it with Jack that we were going to have a little bit of a special chat after him, and we are. We welcome in... Mark Walker and Dale Rogers from the Racetalk.com. Hello, boys. Oh, hello, Shadex and Krause and Mark. How are you? I'm good. How are you, lot? This is difficult. Boys, we've got the team together. I like we've it. We've got the team together. The last time we did this, we had the amazing topic, which went so well in discussion, not just here, but outside of this as well, as to what was our favourite supercar, effectively. I think that was the topic, wasn't it? Oh, it's the favourite, I think, favourite. Australian, a favourite Australian, Australian made, no, it's Australian favourite made racing car. Yeah, yeah. So we've decided, in there. we've decided to reprise that mm. in the guise of your favourite Bathurst driver, your top five favourite Bathurst drives, and I'm sure I speak on behalf of all of us, gentlemen, that. This has been a pretty tough gig, this one. <laughs> it has. I've turned it into a full-time gig. I'm sorry for suggesting this, um, but. It turns out it's it's unearthed some very cool drives, and we we floated it with Jack Perkins just before, uh, and obviously he went went ninety five, great race with his old man. But I really liked him talking about Greg Hansford's drive yes. in the ninety three race, which is often forgotten amongst that battle that they had with uh, Gibson Motorsport. I, I really liked that, so that was really well brought out. Yeah. So what what we wanted to do was capture a moment at one particular effort from any given driver in the history of the great race from 63 onwards. Um, we're not counting the Phillip Island races because Gary O'Brien's not on the show and he wasn't there. So um, yeah, we wanted to capture a really impressive moment, but for mine, it doesn't need to be one of the famous moments. It can be something personal that you witness that you love, something yeah. that happened with a driver you had a relationship with or a friendship with whatever it might be. So I'm really excited to see what comes out of this before we dive into it, boys. I floated this on the race talks, Twitter account earlier today, and it's the most replied to uh, Twitter question since we floated wow. the favorite Australian made racing car one a couple of months ago. So we got a lot of Bathurst 95 was a, was a big one. And I think it's going to feature again in this conversation. Um, Brock's drive in 79 was a big one. Uh, our buddy Chad Nalon picked two. Jamie Winkup in the early stages of 2014 when he blitzed his way through the field, which is legit. Uh, Warren Luff's great drive in the rain in 17, he mentioned. Um, both fair. Um, Damien Bryan mentioned Brock in 87 in the VL in the rain. Uh, haven't seen any mention um, 
Glenn Seaton in 87 in the turbocharged DR30, but that's got to be up there too. Um, Shane B mentioned Brad Jones, triple stint in 94, which is um, a fair point given that performance is probably forgotten amongst the Craig Lowndes hype that year. Dick Johnson, 1980, the list goes on and on. So we had some terrific replies. Keep them coming at the race talk. Um, we'll post this up on Facebook when the podcast goes live too. We'd love to hear people's feedback and what they thought and how it compares what uh, us four Muppets have come up with. So, um, Shebex, I think you're the you're the host, mate. You should probably kick this off at number five. All right. Well, and just before we start, to show you how diverse I think this is going to be, when we were discussing on our, uh, on our <laughs> chat form between the four of us as to what errors or eras we had selected, I started off by saying I had three from the 70s and two from the 2000s. Mark then said none from the 60s, 70s or 80s. Mm. Richard came up with one from the 80s, one from the 90s and three of about 10 undecided. And Dale went three from the 70s, one from the 80s and multiple choices from the 2000s. So I think we're going to have a very diverse group of drives here. I like it. I like it. Kick us off, mate. Dale, do you want to kick us off with your number five? Yes, Shebex, I will. And it was just mentioned a moment ago, but uh, this is one of, in my mind, one of the great drives. 987, uh, a very, very wet World Touring Car Championship race at Bathurst, the one and only one, where the Eggenberger cars came and dominated, then were all disqualified. And there was a young bloke in a Nissan uh, in a wet race who displayed sprint car style-esque uh, across the top of the mount, and the race cam set the TV sets alight. It was an extraordinary drive from Glenn Seaton in the Peter Jackson Nissan, who uh, eventually wound up second in the race uh, in the adjusted results. But his his prowess in the wet was something I still watch to this day, and you just you can't believe what he's doing. Through Reed Park, full opposite lock, and he never lifted off. And uh, it was just a brilliant bit of driving from a young guy who wasn't fearing the conditions. One of the great Bathurst stories for mine. Fantastic. Mark Walker, your fifth. Right. Well, hang on. I'm going to start here with... The process of elimination to get to this five and I'm probably not very happy with the five so uh, for me it's so hard to compare the eras because it's yeah. apples and oranges how the point. race how the race used to be back in the olden days waving some inverted commas around with my hands there it, it was a battle against yourself more than the competition there weren't all these big battles it was bringing the car home in one piece it was racing yourself against the clock I know you three lads have probably all got uh, Peter Brock 79 as your number one. But f- for mine, he was the only car in that race. He, he won it by six laps because everyone else fell out. It's not the even my five. Not Ralph, in your five. No, I didn't even make my shortlist. Ralph Radburn finished third and he was eight laps behind the pace. And, and you look at the thing in qualifying. He qualified at a 26.8. They had the shootout. They got two runs at the clock. He did a two minute 20.5 which was two seconds faster than the field and even with two runs in the top 10 shootout there's still 10 seconds covering the field like there was no competition in the race and of course he was going to win it by six laps and he was out there showboating and blasted out a a fastest lap on the last lap just to show that he was capable of course he was capable i think it was a rocket ship anyway so that didn't make my top five so um, yeah, the other thing that the I, list I, of car, the list of drives that didn't make the top five could be an entire yeah. show. Oh. Yeah. And, and, I, <laughs> and I didn't include anyone who didn't win. I mean, if the greatest drives of all time, mm. yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, I just didn't include any winners. I mean, you, you said Jamie Wink up in 2014 before. 
that's all fine and well, but then he well, let the side down. He, he should have won it. He <laughs> yeah. absolutely should have won it. You can yep. drive fast and conserve fuel, and he did not. He did his own thing and lost the race anyway. That's a story for another day. My Mark, number, number five. five. <laughs> Larry, <laughs> Larry Perkins, 1995, had the contact with Craig Lowndes, uh, getting away from the start, limped into the pits, went a lap down after that, changing that flat tyre. Uh, and amazingly, he managed to work his way back without some sort of free pass mechanism that they have to install this year <laughs> to sort of help those poor, poor people who fall a lap behind. So he made, made it onto the lead lap. Uh, obviously, the safety car late in the race, lap, 128-ish. Uh, it was actually a Larry-built car. David Parsons smashed it into the fence at Griffiths Bend. Uh, that sort of packed it up a bit, but he still had to get past Alan Jones, Wayne Gardner, and obviously outlasted Glenn Seaton and Laurent and Lyon. Uh, Russell Ingle did his part too, but uh, he got very much chatted for talking on race cam and losing a lot of time while doing that, and he was never allowed to talk on race cam ever again after that. So uh, for mine, number five, Larry Perkins, 1995. I was going to go to you next, Richard, but I might just jump in because my number five was a dead heat. So yeah. the fact that you've picked the 95 Larry Perkins and Russell Engel makes my life a lot easier because I had to choose between them and also the last to first finish of Moston and Morris in their race in 2014. I was going to go for Moston and Morris anyway, even though Jack Perkins tried to convince me that I shouldn't. Yeah, true story. So <laughs> the fact that you picked the Perkins and Ingle car, I think is fantastic because that lets me off the hook. Number five for me, the FG Falcon, the Pepsi Max, Chas Mostert, Paul Morris, qualified 14th in the race, but of course excluded due to a uh, passing under red flag in qualifying. So to the back of the grid, a literal last to first win for them. Uh, yeah. And uh, that was my number five. Like it. Like it a lot. Well, I am going for a couple that didn't win the race because I think that great drives need to be put in context and that's fair. And can um, I'm not having a shot. Calm down. I know. Um, uh, and and great drives can happen behind the scenes. And, and I thought th this one was going to be a 2007 great race competitor, um, but I couldn't decide who I wanted it to be. And in the end, I. I basically tossed a coin. It was going to be Stevie J because I thought his drive at the end, a massively underrated touring car driver, I think in the end, Stephen Johnson and his performance in the rain at the end, dicing with Craig Lowndes, who at the time was at the peak of his very considerable powers um, in a triple eight car was an awesome drive. But in the end, I've actually gone for one that was under the radar. And I remember standing there watching this at the time and thinking what an impressive effort and it was a car that finished fifth in the end. And it was Alan Simonson's performance in the rain at the end of that race in the second T8 car, because he was an international driver who had a great reputation here in GT cars. He had a couple of 1000 starts before it, but never had really shone. But when it rained, um, he was electrifying and was easily as fast as the leaders, including his teammate Craig Lowndes in the lead triple eight car. And he was passing guys around the outside of Griffin's Bend in these wet conditions. He came alive. And I remember having worked with Alan in Australian GT to that point, watching that going bloody hell, if there was ever needed to be proof that this guy was good, um, there was proof again of what he was doing in that car in those conditions at the time. So that just stood out for me. It popped. It could have been anyone in that race. It could have easily been Craig Lowndes because what he did at the end there was extraordinary as well. So, but I've gone for that one because of the, the sentimental reasons, I suppose, for, 
for that race and that year and uh, that driver. Dale? Uh, am I right in saying that Ludo was the engineer for that car as well? I probably was. I couldn't tell you. No, nah, he was the engineer for the Xbox car. Was he? Okay. Yeah, the Xbox Commodore. Yeah, uh, yeah the uh, wild card. That wasn't 2007, though. No. <laughs> no. Anyway, number four. Number four. Uh, Dale? Mark, we'll start with you. Oh, we're not going around the table? No, no, we'll, we'll okay. throw it around. Mix it up. All right, so my number four is 2010 Craig Lowndes. Uh, I'm sure you lads have probably got all... What? Yeah, good. <laughs> so that race, uh, they qualified second. Uh, it was him and Scafie driving. Scafie popped a rib, pulled up, injured, couldn't go on. Lounsey had to do the last 79 laps by himself with no help. Triple stinted it, bring it home. I mean, I'm sure no doubt you guys are going to bring up Brock 72 and, and things like that where, yeah, see, I've, I'm buggering it for everyone here. But no, in those cases... <laughs> You know, they had to do 800k solo, but it was 20% slower than what Lowndes had to do it at. Like, Lowndes had to bash out quick laps all afternoon there for three hours driving straight, uh, which I reckon was a pretty awesome deal. Also had to lead home a sprint to the finish after Will Davo bent his HRT car up the top of the hill. So, led home a, a triple eight one two, which was impressive, but... Um, Lancey said afterwards that it was his toughest ever race at Bathurst and 79 straight laps in the heat of the day. That was uh, really impressive. It was a race record at the time and Lancey got that back in 2018. So I reckon that was a pretty good deal there. Number four, Craig Lowndes, 2010. Well, I'll jump in there, Shebex, because I had that, I had that moment at number four as well. Same deal, same reasons. Well, um, I just remember watching that unfold on the day and just it just added another chapter to the Lowndes legend that he'd carry the thing literally on his own back after Scafie's failed. So terrific performance. And that was number four for mine as well. Dale. Hello. Number four. Uh, I love privateers at Bathurst. Uh, I've always thought they've been the, the backbone of the race for so long up against factories. And there was a privateer in 1974 who I believe his acceptance speech was almost as long as the race. It hasn't finished <laughs> the great, yet. <laughs> the great John Goss. Um, Gossie almost won the thing in 73 when it went to 1,000 Ks with KB. They went back in 74 with their McLeod Ford XA Falcon. Uh, qualified third. Uh, Moffat had brought the uh, Brute 33 $150,000 USA special to the mountain, which failed. Um, and, of course, HRT, the Holden Deal team arrived with their two SLR 5000s, amongst other cars. So... The chance of a Ford winning were very slim on the day. The only other car in the field for the Fords was Murray Carter. Um, Goss was qualified third, uh, dropped well back at the start. Uh, car had problems during the morning. Uh, he, he, he nursed effectively nursed it back uh, to be in touch with the, the two um, HR, HDT Tiranas who then suffered massive oil surge problems. But it became very wet, seriously wet. And uh, Gossi uh, ran off at McPhillamy, ripped a, a tire off and you know it's one of those one of those instances managed to get the car off the mountain ran the whole way down conrod straight with the wheel in the dirt which was good thinking ne never got it on the pavement crossed on crossed it uh, into the pits moff was there with his uh, with his goodyear tires to put on because the bridgestones weren't very good and gossie and kb went on to what was one of the i reckon one of the great privateer victories and, and a drive he, he never really was out of it but yet had to nurse the car in the first couple of hours to actually bring himself back into play. So for mine, just one of the great privateer stories on that and Gossie and KB, 74. And for mine, number four, you've got to put in what was probably one of the most dominant performances in Bathurst history, and that was the 79 win of Brock and Jim Richards. 
winning by six laps and the like in the uh, in the Tirana. New lap record, as you mentioned before, Mark, of uh, 2.22.11 on the final lap. But for me, and you know my affinity and my love of the Tirana, it was the first car that my family had and all that sort of stuff. So it was the first car that I can remember. It was the last time that Tirana raced at the Bathurst 1000. Of course, the Commodore came in 1980. So for me, there was just that little bit of emotional attachment to that drive by both of those guys. So the 79 Bathurst for me, of Brock and Richards. Mm. Number three, Richard. Right. I am going to enjoy this one. Um, for all the talk about Brock and being dominant at Mount Panorama, there were very few situations where he went there in the 70s and 80s where he wasn't. And he wasn't in a car that he could win with. And I love his drive in 1985 in the VK Commodore that was outclassed by the TWR Jags. Wasn't as fast just scraped into the shootout. In fact, there was an 11 car shootout. So qualified at the very back of that. Um, And then the well-documented dramas towards the end of the race with the front windscreen failing. And then the steward saying that a car without a front screen couldn't have a rear one either. So you had the mechanic swinging off the roll bar to fly kick it out of the car. And Mike Raymond with no front screen, no rear screen, air conditioning Bathurst style. And I think that drive did more for Brock's legacy or as much for Brock's legacy as a great of touring car racing in the world than his dominant victories did. Cause he was always in the great car, but that year he wasn't. And he got within two laps of potentially probably wouldn't have hunted down the TWR Jag, but certainly to finish second against those cars would have been enormous. Um, one of the great, great drives in Bathurst history. So that sits at number three for me. Um, I love the fable that's been built up around it until that uh, single row timing trail in, in the uh, five letter Holden V8 failed at the very end uh, of what would have been an incredible podium for the great man. So Brock 85 Bathurst in the James Hardy for mine at three. Beautiful stuff. Uh, my number three goes to a guy who was one of the very few guys who actually won the race on debut at the mountain driving with uh, Alan Moffat, who I think was going for either his third or his fourth win at the time in 1997 in the XC Falcon. Jackie X, who of course came over the Belgium driver, uh, more known for his open wheel driving through Formula One and also very uh, numerous starts at the 24-hour Le Mans, probably at least a dozen, if not more, and uh, did finish first in half a dozen of those races at Le Mans as well. So to arrive at Bathurst for your very, very first start, a, 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 a beautiful drive, there's no doubt about it, he could drive, but Bathurst, as we know, is a totally different beast. And to jump into a, an XC Falcon, of which the like of he'd probably never seen before in his life as a racing car, to be a part of that finish with Moffat, to the extent that, Dale, correct me if I'm wrong, Moffat had brake dramas in the last few laps due to the fact that Jackie had been driving that car so hard that had it not have been a one-two for that team at the time, Moffat may not have won the race. Yeah, that's right, Tony. The car was 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 wounded, uh, and Bonds was in pretty good shape. Uh, Bond would have won the race by a lap, um, but sat back, did the right thing, and uh, you know it's probably. It, I know one-twos have been done since then, but it's the most famous one-two by a mile. Oh, without a doubt, and the most famous finish at Bathurst, I think, uh, picturesque-wise, in the way that it was captured at the time as well from the uh, the helicopter above. So, for me, that's my number three, Jackie X, and his drive with Alan Moffat 
in the XC Falcon at 77 Bathurst. Dale? Yeah, I love cars at Bathurst that um, have something hanging off them, like beer cartons. Um, <laughs> in 1971, um, towards the end of the solo drive here, as uh, Alan Moffat uh, drove the Ford Motor Company, the Famaco GTHO Phase 3, uh, to an out, a, 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 a ripper win in uh, in. In fact, the GDHOs were the car of the year and then they'd finally got rid of all the problems and they were fantastic. Picked up a, a, a box of beer, VB, from if my memory serves me correctly, and pounded around, <laughs> pounded around for, uh, for many, many laps with this box hanging off. Um, and the guys in the pits, of course, no telemetry or anything, so uh, they were worried about it. And all they did was they stopped him a little bit early and just checked some water temp and oil temp. Everything was fine. Off he went. Never, less, never lost the lead. Yeah, I know it was a dominant victory, but uh, it, I think it was the era where, where uh, Moffat really came to his own at Bathurst. He owned Bathurst at that stage. Brocky really wasn't up to speed at that point. That came in 72 and onwards. But thinking about when you look at those cars, solo drive, six and a half, seven hours, whatever it was, on effectively a standard seat with a bit of padding taped on it and a, and a pretty crappy harness, um, and you don't get out of the car. So um, I, th- I thought those those last those guys because they were brutes of cars. They weren't you know they weren't small cars and they weren't slow cars. They were pulling 170 miles an hour down Conrad. Uh, so for mine, 71, great race um, and a great victory from Moffat, probably his best. Mark, your number three. Bex, I've gone like you and an import, not a Australian, not a Kiwi, a Swede, Ricard Rydell. Super Touring Bathurst 1998 in the Volvo S40. Absolutely smoked it to pole with a 14.9 and a two-litre car. Like, that was ridiculously quick. I rate that as an all-time top shootout lap. Uh, it was one and a half seconds fast in the field. Absolute cracker. Uh, race day itself, it was a battle between uh, Rickard Rydell, Jim Richards in the Volvo, and Matt Neal and uh, Stephen Richards in the Nissan Primera. Those two just swapped positions at the front of the field all day long. Uh, at the end of the day, it wound up being a 17-lap sprint to the finish. Uh, he was chased all the way home by Matt Neal. He was the only car in the 17-second bracket on race day, and he achieved that on lap 153, and he wound up winning the race by two seconds. It was an absolute cracker, brilliant drive. Ricard Rydell, number three for mine. A funny fun fact for you, outside of Australia, New Zealand, Canada, is the only other country that has produced a multiple winner of Bathurst in Alan Moffat. All other winners from other countries have only been one of. Hmm. Fun fact. Fun hmm. fact. There you go. Never, uh, a lot of never get invited back, Tony. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, number two, Dale. Uh, yeah, I've, look, I have gone uh, 79 Bathurst with Brock. Uh, I know that there's a, a lot of feeling about it, it was a one-car race, but um, he... He never he never missed the thing. He, he was he, he won by six laps, which is he won by forty kilometres. You know he's halfway up the highway back to uh, Sydney. Two twenty one point one on the last lap, six lap victory, uh, seventy entries on that race. Sixty eight of them started, and twenty eight were classified. So the attrition rate was high. Amongst the attrition rate was all, were all the Fords uh, of any note. Uh, so it was a Holden domination. And, yeah, as Mark mentioned, the, there was daylight second and, and there wasn't a lot of competition second. Gricey, I think, was the, was the best of the, you know, the, 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 the real guys. But for mine, it, it was just a demonstration of, of total dominance, uh, confidence in a vehicle, confidence in a co-driver, uh, and, just, and, and he passed seven cars on the last lap. So 
for mine, yeah, just one of the great drives. I, I can't fault you could not fault Peter Brock at his best, and that for mine was one of them. I'd love to ask Jim Richards the question. I'm sure he's been asked it before, but does he feel does he feel undervalued in that drive? No, I don't think so. No, I've asked. I have asked that. You have. And what was his answer, Richard? No, he he did exactly what he was there to do, which yeah. was to give Brock a car to get to the end. Yeah. He Jim just played his role exactly as he was required to do. But that's Jim. Like this, that's his personality. Yeah. Um, it, it's not about Jim Richards. It's about it's about the team and the greater whole and and doing the team job. Yeah, I, I had. The amazing fortune to chat to Jimmy and and Stephen at a, a charity night we did for Laser Plumbing and Electrical a couple of years ago, and I asked him that question. So it's all about Brock, isn't it? it was about, but that, that's what the team was. Yeah. It was his race team, so it was all about him. And I was there just to do a job. So yeah. and that's what makes Jim Richard such a great human being and a, a champion race car driver. While you have the microphone, my friend, number two, please. Right. So. It, that we, we didn't lay down any criteria in this, which is great. So it doesn't necessarily mean that a great drive has to occur in the race. And I'm sure none of my colleagues were on agree. the way from Sydney out on the <laughs> Oh, there's been some moments. Bell's lighter broke. Um, or, or missing a kangaroo heading to the oh, track first thing in the morning. Stop it. Yes, there's there's been some dramas. But I'm sure my colleagues will agree that at Mount Panorama, there is nothing more impressive than an on-the-edge top 10 shootout lap for a driver. It is the pinnacle of our sport, that moment on a Saturday afternoon when a driver and a race car is all alone on that place and they get to try and just go as hard as they can to qualify and pole. And on that basis, I I couldn't look past Greg Murphy in 2003. The, the, The shootout, yes, of course, but the performance in the race, they were dominant that day. They crushed the field. Um, they won by eight seconds or so, a lot of green flag running towards the end, but they only, um, they didn't lead, I think, eight of the last 61 laps of that race. So they were in control the whole day, but that shootout lap was impressive. And and the lap time was one thing, but the, the biggest thing that grabbed me about it was how far it moved the goalposts. Because Murph earlier in the weekend had smacked out his 7.95, which to the point was the quickest lap by a touring car ever at Mount Panorama. And in fact, one of the fastest ever laps at Mount Panorama by anything, um, toppling that Neil Allen's lap in the F5000 in the 70s. John Bowes' 7.95 in the shootout was an incredible lap time. But Murph goes 1.1 seconds faster. It moved the goalposts out of the park and into a completely different stadium. It was a ridiculous time. It will stand up for a very, very long time as the greatest single lap, I think, in Bathurst history and deserves a place in this list. So for mine, it's number two. I had toyed between either that or uh, or Scotty Max mm. record-breaking run. but uh, I, yeah, I had that same argument. Race. Well I had, done, this, I had well the done. same argument, and I yeah. think just Murphy moved the game so much further forward. Yeah, no, mm. fair enough, too. Uh, my number two goes to the 1976 version of the Hardy Ferrado 1000. And I can tell you that the drive wasn't that of either Jack Brabham or Sterling Moss. No. They no. won't be included in the best drives of that era, but it goes to John Fitzpatrick and his final few laps uh, driving with Bob Morris in that Tirana, two minutes ahead with a few laps to go. And then all of a sudden the EPA considered taking the car out of the race due to the amount of smoke that it was blowing and what it was going to do to the ozone layer. (laughs) Uh, Colin Bond absolutely flying behind them. And for John Morris, the drama back in the pits and the, the cutaways, 
back to Bob Morrison in tears because it looked like they were going to lose what was going to be the unlosable. And for Fitzpatrick to bring that car home, absolute limp, more so than me after 15 beers. Uh, well, it was a great effort by John Fitzpatrick. We've lost, we've lost Richard. Richard's <laughs> out. He's gone. That race. Hey, Tony, you've got to add one more thing to that. Yeah. It's the race that is still in dispute whether they won or not because the Holden dealer team yeah. lap charts say that Bond was a lap in front to this yeah. day. And they ought, they never match the ARDC's lap charts. However, the ARDC's lap charts are the official ones. But uh, yeah, it was a great race. It was, yeah, awesome. it was a great race. My number two, uh, Mark. Shebeck, hang on. Shebeki, I've had 15 beers with you. That's not a piece of, of information I needed to hear. <laughs> well, now you know. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a piece of information that I was actually willing to share. It just no, came there out. There you go. <laughs> It's been a long lockdown. Uh, number two for me, Shebeck's mentioned it earlier on there. Uh, for mine, I'm actually writing in my diary about this at the moment. My psychiatrist isn't terribly impressed, so I expect to see this on the race talk sometime in the next couple of weeks. Mm. But it is all about overcoming adversity. It might not technically be the best drive of all time, but uh, 2014, Chas Mostert, uh, like you mentioned, Shebeck, started last. He had to overcome that. He had to overcome... Paul Morris at the end of his career, who frankly wasn't as fast as uh, Paul Morris used to be. Also had to overcome Paul Morris fencing the car twice, uh, had to overcome the damage to like the car wouldn't be tracking straight. It wouldn't have been a pretty car to drive. Uh, so it was last once again, after 46 laps, uh, got it to the top three on lap 118, splash and dash 150, restarted fourth. Uh, obviously, Lounsey took out Frosty and then Winkup took himself out. But uh, he put the pressure on Wincup to make him run out of gas, which uh, I think was the thing that got him across the line there. But yep. um, he didn't get caught up in any of the shenanigans of the day. Like everyone else crashed for a variety of reasons. But uh, Chaz just drove a, a cracking race there. And for mine, number two. And I must say, for myself and Richard, and I, I hope I'm not speaking <laughs> on your behalf, Richard, probably the most memorable piece of commentary <laughs> yes. that we will ever be involved with <laughs> that final lap mm. of that Bathurst, Richard and I are calling it for SEN back in Melbourne. Brett Murray Crusher was with us as special comments. He'd had a thousand dollars is my understanding on that mob at a hundred to one to win the race <laughs> and yeah. how he did not swear. Well, in that two minutes, 11 of that final lap is beyond me. He was standing in the middle of a Shebex. And I distinctly remember both of us having a hand on each of his shoulders, <laughs> ready to yank him away. So it pulled the headset off his head in case he dropped a certain profanity, which at no point should be aired on commercial radio. And in fact, you would hesitate to use on a podcast. Um, yeah. Remarkable, remarkable motor race that yeah. day, 2014, just, oh, in for me, yeah. yeah it certainly was. Uh, that's everyone with number twos, isn't it? Yes. Yep. So we go to number one. Uh, let's go from the top of my screen. I'll start with you, Richard. Well, my my number one has been mentioned before, and it's LP in '95. Um, and for an impressionable young bloke sitting on the floor of uh, the family room at my folks' house in Lindock, um, as a diehard Holden fan. And having watched both HRT cars fail abysmally within the first 30 laps and let the side down immensely 
um, all your hopes. And, and I wasn't a Mark Scaife fan, so I certainly wasn't cheering for the Wingfield car. Um, all my hopes sat on Larry Perkins and they were at a point a lap down. So watching LP at the end of that race for an impressionable young bloke with a passion for the sport was, was unbelievably good. And um, we've talked about it on this show before the moment when he passed Alan Jones down Conrad Strait, uh, and the crowd went bananas and Mike Raymond went bananas. And it was just, that's one of the seminal moments in my personal love affair with the great race. So LP and a 95 uh, miraculous stuff. One of the great cars, one of the great drivers. Um, that's my number one. Simple as that. Uh, I'm next on my screen. So my number one goes to only the second race that I ever saw live at Bathurst, remembering that I'd never been to Bathurst before I started covering it for, 2000, for SEN. So it goes to the 2006 Bathurst win of Lowndes and Win Cup and the emotion built around that whole race with the death of Peter Brock, obviously, just uh, not too long before the actual race, the build-up, the shock of everyone heading into it, the emotion of the fans, the signing of the car uh, at the entrance to Bathurst when you walk in through the gates, all that sort of stuff took us to what was going to be a, a, a memorable and amazing race. The car of Lowndes and Wincup. Jamie Wincup's first win at Bathurst. Craig Lowndes' second win 10 years after his first. It was a lot of firsts, actually, in that race to the extent that not only was it Wincup's first win, but it was the first win for Ford since 1998. So there'd been an eight-year spell, a dry spell for Ford. And also the first win for Triple Eight at Bathurst as well, who'd been trying to win the race for around about 10 years or so. Rick and Todd Kelly tried as hard as they could to spoil the party, but finished off half a second off the lead. And it was the, the finish where Lowndes crosses the line and they go straight to the in-car camera. And as soon as he lifts up that visor, there was so many tears in his eyes that it was impossible for those tears to formulate from the minute he'd crossed the line. So I believe that he'd probably been driving maybe even the last half of that lap with that emotion and tear of what was going to be an amazing win and took it over the line with him. A, a fantastic finish, a great story to end what was an amazing career for Peter Brock and put a full stop to that career at Bathurst with Lowndes winning that first Peter Brock trophy. The emotion of that just carries me over the line as it being the best win, uh, the best drive at Bathurst. Good one. Mm. Mark, you're next. Uh, I'm right with you there, Shebex. Uh, 2006, Craig Lowndes, Bathurst 1000. I apologise uh, for stealing your thunder, my friend. No, no, no. Look, I'm here to add to what you had to say. Uh, it was just the emotion attached to it, wasn't it? And I mean, yeah. the other thing that weekend too, we had Mark Porter on life support and hospital. I Correct, mean, it's exactly. been a tough weekend, wild race. You had Radisic in the fence and you didn't know how well he was. That was an awful, awful shunt. So it was a, a tough weekend. Uh, you mentioned the, the margin there at the end, half a second, uh, Craig back to Rick Kelly, uh, the brothers Kelly, they lost Bathurst in Sandown by less than a second that year because uh, Bridie won the Sandown 500 by two tenths of a second. Yeah. So that was amazing. Uh, those top two, they set their fastest lap on lap 158. And they would have kept going faster, except for the Jason Richards was parked across the track at the top of the mountain, which uh, had the yellow flags out there. They finished the race uh, under local yellows rather than 
finishing off with a safety car. So that was uh, big. And the other thing to think too, those two guys were racing for the title that year and that all came to a head at Phillip Island a little bit later on. So uh, yeah, mad race. Given the circumstances, you know, Lancey driving the Tirana and race morning, like he, he, wasn't, he wasn't sure if he could start it or not. It was such a tough day and uh, the emotion attached to it. It might not technically be the best drive of all time, but uh, for all the other factors, uh, I'll put that in there at number one. Dale, wrap us up, my friend. Yes, uh, my my Bathurst, uh, my number one Bathurst story started actually on the 8th of September uh, in 2006 when I was at the MCG watching my beloved Demons beat St Kilda in a uh, final and the Holden blimp came across, eerily across the MCG um, with, the mess- that. with the message RIP Peter Brock on it. Yeah. Um, and it was an extraordinary feeling in the stand. And whether you were a race fan or not, it didn't matter. Exactly four weeks later, Craig Lowndes um, stood on the grid next to the uh, 28 XU1 in the morning in tears. Bev came up and hugged him. Roland Dane had spoken to him about whether he could start or not because he was going to put Wincup in the car. Wincup completely untried in a triple eight car. And, and Tone, they weren't trying to win it for a year. This was their first go at it. Uh, for 10 years. Um, and really, the, 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 he decided to get in the car and it was, it was his decision to drive. It probably would have been even more sensible to put Wincup in as, because Craig was clearly upset. He drove a brilliant race, uh, no doubt about it. And uh, the guys, have, you've, you've covered off the issues. Um, but I just, uh, the, the day was extraordinary. To be on that grid on that, that morning, um, it's still, I see photos of it. I was researching today. It still sends shivers down your spine of just what yeah, that was yeah. all about. It was an extraordinary morning. And, you know, the, the, the whole of the grid was just almost was a blubbering mess in 20 minutes or an hour before the greatest race in Australia. So uh, he just did an enormous job to, to hold off the Kellys, as Mark said, by 0.5 a second, as Tone said as well, and to raise the Peter Brock Trophy uh, for mm. the very, very first time. Mm. Um, it's, it just, it, it, there are no more boxes to tick for mine. That, that was the greatest Bathurst that I've ever seen. There you go. Three Amen. of us agree on the number one. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, that was extraordinary, wasn't it? I feel like I've let the side down here. <laughs> you, have, you, you, you have time now to reconsider. No, no, no. I'm not going to change my mind. I, it was absolutely in my extensive shortlist, and it'd be number six on mine if I had to give it a position. But um, yeah, no, it's hard to disagree with with any of those. Interesting to note, out of twenty drives in particular, um, only four were doubled up or in that case tripled up. So the variety is sensational. And, and that's yeah. what's so great about the great race is that it's a very personal thing. And um, everyone takes something different out of it and, and different moments resonate with different people, which I think is just part of the appeal and the, the ongoing appeal of that place. So yeah, very, very cool guys. This was a great experiment and um, yeah, a cool way to kick off our preparations for the great race next week. I think what I'm proud of is the fact that I got three, the same as Mark Walker. <laughs> You're a good man, Chebex. I always said you're a good judge. What I'm stunned about, Tony, from you, is Mm. that it's a Ford at number one on your list. Now, that's got to be a first. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I've mellowed in my old age, Dale. (laughs) I enjoyed some of yours, Dale, as well. uh, The Gossy 74 was a really good one. That That was outstanding. Nice. Hey, and we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Jump on the racetalk.com, all our socials, and give us your thoughts. Uh, We'll put a story on this. There'll be a story definitely on the website. And, uh, of course, you've just heard it on the podcast as well. So we'd love your thoughts. Do you agree with us? Is there anything you'd like to add? 
whack them on and uh, we'll have a chat about them at another time. Big show coming up next week, boys. It is our big Bathurst preview. Mark, we're going to hear from you uh, and your chat with Craig Lowndes next week because I think uh, that'll give us a great lead-in to what promises to be an amazing Bathurst week. It's a big week for us, actually, because not only will we have our special Bathurst preview week, but, Richard, I think we might even be doing something uh, Facebook live-ish. Yep, fingers crossed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's the plan. We hope, Richard, we hope to be doing something We Facebook hope to live-ish. be doing something Facebook live. We're, we're still piecing it together, but um, keep an eye. It'll be Wednesday night on the TRT Facebook page. Um, but we're, we're building up. We're going to go real hard. We've got our massive Bathurst preview uh, coming as well. We'll run that Monday, Tuesday next week. Um, the four of us, plus a couple of experts and drivers and a few others will be contributing um, to various questions that we've posed about it. Um, you can go back. We'll post some links to last year's ones as well. They work really well. So, um, yeah, we're going hard. We might not be able to be at Mount Panorama this year no. for all of the varying reasons, but um Ain't nothing going to stop us from covering that race and having a good time in great Motor racing's just going to get in the way of the efficiency of our pumping out content. I mean, we're just going to bash out so much content by not being there, being distracted by all that car racing going on. Do we each order... Do we each order some takeaway Chinese for Sunday night and have our traditional takeaway Chinese over Zoom? That could be the go. And we should also mention too that uh, On The Grid will be producing its uh, hourly podcast during the Bathurst race where we'll be bringing you up to date. So if you can't be near your TV and you need an update as to what's happening, just make sure that you've got your uh, mobile phone and your podcast ability and you'll be able to catch up with everything. How are the Chinese restaurants in Bathurst going to cope without any doctors or media there? This this is going to be the greatest economic crisis since the Depression. I've just got a story idea. What I'm going to do is put down my wish list of things that I want all the punters who are in Bathurst to live my dream, live my week out. The lucky 4,000. The lucky 4,000. Wednesday night, the first Chinese restaurant. Uh, Then off to Jack Duggan's. Then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. It'll be on the site. Yeah. Do you think do you reckon the uh, the Chinese restaurants uh, there would, would Uber Eats to Melbourne and Lindock and Brisbane? Because <laughs> I want to keep the economy going in Bathurst. Yeah, so do I. I need it to and, be there next year. And you year. know the weird part about it is, Dale, it'll still be warm by the time it gets here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a scary thing. Uh, Gentlemen, catch you next week. It's going to be a good. big Bathurst uh, preview week. Thanks for your uh, work today. And thank you for tuning in. As we said, jump on the socials and have a chat about our discussion today. We'll catch you next week. Bathurst week right here on the grid.